The Dope on Mars by Jack Sharkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale Grothman. Somebody had to get the human angle on this trip. But what was humane about sending me? The Dope on Mars by Jack Sharkey. My agent was the one who got me the job of going along to write up the first trip to Mars. He was always getting me things like that, appearances on TV shows or mentions in writers' magazines. If he didn't sell much of my stuff, at least he sold me. It'll be the biggest break a writer ever got, he told me two days before blastoff. Oh, sure, there'll be scientific reports on the trip, but the public doesn't want them. They want the human slant on things. But, Louie, I said weakly, I'll probably be locked up for the whole trip. If there are fights or accidents, they won't tell me about them. Nonsense, said Louie, sipping carefully at a paper cup of scalding coffee. It'll be just like the public going along, vicariously. They'll identify with you. But, Louie, I said, wiping the dampness from my palms on the knees of my trousers as I sat there, how'll I go about it? A story? An article? A you-are-there type of report? What? Louis shrugged. So keep a diary. That'll be more intimate-like. But what if nothing happens, I insisted hopelessly. Louis smiled. So you fake it. I got up from the chair in his office and stepped to the door. That's dishonest, I pointed out. Creative is the word, Louis said. So I went on the first trip to Mars, and I kept a diary. This is it. And it is honest. Honest it is. October 1st, 1960. They picked a launch date from the March 1959 New York Times, which stated that this was the most likely time for launching. Trip time was supposed to be 260 days. That's one way. So we're aiming toward where Mars will be, and had better be, or else. There were five of us on board. A pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and biochemist. And, of course, me. I've met all but the pilot. He's very busy today. And they seem friendly enough. Dwight Kroger, the biochemist, is rather old to take the rigors of the journey, as he puts it. But the government had a choice between sending a green scientist who could stand the trip or an accomplished man who would probably not survive. So they picked Kroger. We've blasted off, though, and he's still with us. He looks a damn sight better than I feel. He's kind of balding and very iron-gray-haired and skinny. But his skin is tanned like an Indian's, and right now he's telling jokes in the washroom with the co-pilot. Jones, the co-pilot, I didn't quite catch his first name, is scarlet-faced, barrel-chested, and gives the appearance of belonging under a spreading chestnut tree, not in a metal bullet flinging itself out into airless space. Come to think of it, who does belong where we are? The navigator's name is Lloyd Streeter, but I haven't seen his face yet. He has a little cubicle behind the pilot's compartment, with all kinds of maps and rulers and things. He keeps bent low over the welded-to-the-wall they call it a bulkhead for some reason or other, table, 
scratching away with a ballpoint pen on the maps, and now and then calling numbers over a microphone to the pilot. His hair is red and curly, and he looks as though he'd be tall if he ever gets to stand up. There are freckles on the backs of his hands, so I think he's probably got them on his face, too. So far, all he's said is, Scram, I'm busy. Kroger tells me the pilot's name is Patrick Desmond, and that I can call him Pat when I get to know him better. So far, he's still Captain Desmond to me. I haven't the vaguest idea what he looks like. He was already on board when I got here, with my typewriter and ream of paper, so we didn't meet. My compartment is small but clean. I mean, clean now. It wasn't during blast-off. The inertial gravities didn't bother me so much as the gyroscopic spin they put on the ship, so we have a sort of artificial gravity to hold us against the curved floor. It's that constant whirly feeling that gets me. I get sick on merry-go-rounds, too. They're having pork for dinner tonight, not me. October 2nd, 1960 Feeling much better today. Kroger gave me a box of Dramamine. He says they'll help my stomach. So far, so good. Lloyd came by also. You play chess, he asked. A little, I admitted. How about a game sometime? Sure, I said. Do you have a board? He didn't. Lloyd went away then, but the interview wasn't wasted. I learned that he is tall and does have a freckled face. Maybe we can build a chessboard. With my paper and his ballpoint pen and ruler, it should be easy. Don't know what we'll use for pieces, though. Jones, I still haven't learned his first name, has been up with the pilot all day. He passed my room on the way to the galley, the kitchen, for a cup of dark brown coffee. They like it thick. And told me that we are almost past the moon. I asked to look, but he said, not yet. The instrument panel is top secret. They'd have to cover it so I could look out the view screen and they still need it to steer, or something. I still haven't met the pilot. October 3rd, 1960 Well, I've met the pilot. He's kind of squat, with a vulturish neck, and close-set jet-black eyes that make him look rather mean. But he was pleasant enough, and said I could call him Pat. I still don't know Joan's first name, though Pat spoke to him, and it sounded like Flance. That can't be right. Also, I am one of the first five men in the history of the world to see the opposite side of the moon, with a bluish blurred crescent beyond it that Pat said was the earth. The back of the moon isn't very different from the front. As to the space in front of the ship, well, it's all black with white dots in it, and none of the dots move, except in a circle which Pat says is a torque, resulting from the gyroscopic spin we're in. Actually, he explained to me, the screen is supposed to keep the image of space locked into place, no matter how much we spin. But there's some kind of drag. I told him I hoped it doesn't mean we'll land on Mars upside down. He just stared at me. I can't say I was too impressed by the 16 by 19 view of outer space. It's done much better in the movies. There's just no awesomeness to it. No sense of depth or immensity. It's as impressive as a piece of velvet with salt sprinkled on it. Lloyd and I made a chessboard out of a carton. Right now we're using buttons for men. 
He's one of these fast players who doesn't stop and think out their moves. So far, I haven't won a game. It looks like a long trip. October 4th, 1960. I won a game. Lloyd mistook my queen button for my bishop button and left his king in jeopardy, and I checkmated him next move. He said chess was a waste of time, and he had important work to do, and he went away. I went to the galley for coffee and had a talk about moss with Kroger. He said there was a good chance of lichen on Mars, and I misunderstood and said, A good chance of lichen what on Mars? And Kroger finished his coffee and went up front. When I got back to my compartment, Lloyd had taken away the chessboard and all his buttons. He told me later he needed it to back up a star map. Pat slept mostly all day in his compartment, and Jones sat and watched the screen revolve. There wasn't much to do, so I wrote a poem, sort of. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With Martian rhyme and Venusian slime and a radioactive hoe. I showed it to Kroger. He said it may prove to be environmentally accurate, but that I should stick to prose. October 5, 1960 Learned Jones' first name. He wrote something in the ship's log, and I saw his signature. His name is Philance, like in Macbeth. He prefers to be called Jones. Pat uses his first name as a gag. Some fun. Only 255 days to go. April 1st, 1961. I've skipped over the last 177 days or so, because there's nothing much new. I brought some books with me on the trip, books that I'd always meant to read, but never had the time. So now I know all about Vanity Fair, Pride and Prejudice, War and Peace, Gone with the Wind, and Babbitt. They didn't take as long as I thought they would, except for Vanity Fair. It must have been a riot when it first came out. I mean, all those sly digs at the aristocracy, with copious interpolations by Mr. Thackeray, in case you didn't get it when he pulled a particularly good gag. Some fun. Only 78 days to go. June 1, 1961. Only 17 days to go. I saw Mars on the screen today. It seemed to be descending from overhead but Pat says that's the torque doing it. Actually, it's we who are coming in sideways. We've all grown beards, too. Pat said it was against regulations, but what the hell? We have a contest. Longest whiskers on landing gets a prize. I asked Pat what the prize was, and he told me to go to hell. June 18, 1961. Mars has the whole screen filled. Looks like Death Valley. No sign of canals, but Pat says that's because of the dust storm down below. It's nice to have a down below again. We're going to land, so I have to go to my bunk. It's all foam rubber, nylon braid supports, and magnesium tubing. Might as well have been cement for all the good it did me at takeoff. Earth seems awfully far away. June 19, 1961. Well, we're down. We have to wear gas masks with oxygen hookups. Kroger says the air is breathable, but thin, and it has too much dust in it to be any fun to inhale. He's all for going out and looking for lichen, but Pat says he's got to set up camp. 
then get instructions from Earth. So we just have to wait. The air is very cold. But the sun is hot as hell when it hits you. The sky is a blinding pink, or maybe more of a pale fuchsia. Kroger says it's the dust. The sand underfoot is kind of rose-colored and not really gritty. The particles are round and smooth. No lichen so far. Kroger says maybe in the canals, if there are any canals. Lloyd wants to play chess again. Jones won the beard contest. Pat gave him a cigar he'd smuggled on board. No smoking was allowed on the ship. And Jones threw it away. He doesn't smoke. June 20, 1961. Got lost today. Pat told me not to go too far from camp. So, when I took a stroll, I made sure every so often that I could still see the rocket behind me. Walked for maybe an hour. Then the oxygen gauge got past the halfway mark, so I started back toward the rocket. After maybe ten steps, the rocket disappeared. One minute it was standing there, tall and silvery. The next instant it was gone. Turned on my radio pack and got hold of Pat. Told him what had happened, and he told Kroger. Kroger said I had been following a mirage to step back a bit. I did, and I could see the ship again. Kroger said to try and walk towards where the ship seemed to be, even when it wasn't in view. And meantime, they'd come out after me in the jeep, following my footprints. Started walking back, and the ship vanished again. It reappeared, disappeared, but I kept going. Finally saw the real ship, and Lloyd and Jones waving their arms at me. They were shouting through their masks, but I couldn't hear them. The air is too thin to carry sound well. All at once something gleamed in their hands, and they started shooting at me with their rifles. That's when I heard the noise behind me. I was too scared to turn around, but finally Jones and Lloyd came running over, and I got up enough nerve to look. There was nothing there, but on the sand paralleling mine were footprints. At least I think they were footprints. Twice as long as mine and three times as wide but kind of featureless because the sand's loose and dry. They double back on themselves, spaced considerably further apart. What was it? I asked Lloyd when he got to me. Damned if I know, he said. It was red and scaly, and I think it had a tail. It was two heads taller than you, he shuddered. Ran off when we fired. Where, said Jones, are Pat and Kroger? I didn't know. I hadn't seen them, nor the jeep, on my trip back. So we followed the wheel tracks for a while, and they veered off from my trail and followed another, very much like the one that had paralleled mine when Jones and Lloyd had taken the shot at the scaly thing. We'd better get them on the radio, said Jones, turning back toward the ship. There wasn't anything on the radio but static. Pat and Kroger haven't come back yet, either. June 21, 1961 We're not alone here. More of the scaly things have come toward the camp, but a few rifle shots send them away. They hop like kangaroos when they're startled. Their attitudes aren't menacing, but their appearance is, and Jones says, who knows what's menacing in an alien? We're going to look for Kroger and Pat today. Jones said we better before another windstorm blows away all the jeep tracks. 
Fortunately, the jeep has a leaky oil pan, so we always have the smears to follow, unless they get covered up too. We're taking extra oxygen, shells, and rifle. Food, too, of course. And we're locking up the ship. It's later now. We found the jeep, but no Kroger or Pat. Lots of those big tracks nearby. We're taking the jeep to follow the aliens' tracks. There's some moss around here, on reddish-brown rocks that stick up through the sand. Just on the shady side, though. Kroger must have been happy to find his lichen. The trail ended at the brink of a deep crevice in the ground. Seems to be an earthquake-type split in solid rock, with the sand shifting over this and the far edge, like pink silk cataracts. The bottom is in shade and can't be seen. The crack seems to extend to our left and right, as far as we can look. It looks like a trail down the inside of the crevice, but the sun's setting, so we're waiting until tomorrow to go down. Going down is Joan's idea, not mine. June twenty-second, 1961 Well, we're at the bottom, and there's water here, a shallow stream about thirty feet wide that runs along the center of the canal. We've decided we're in a canal. No sign of Pat or Kroger yet, but the sand here is hard-packed and damp, and there are normal-sized footprints mingled with the alien ones, sharp and clear. The aliens seem to have six or seven toes. It varies from print to print. And they're barefoot, too, or else they have the damnedest-looking shoes in creation. The constant shower of sand near the cliff's wall is annoying, but it's sandless, shower-wise, near the stream, so we're following the footprints along the bank. Also, the air's better down here. Still thin, but not so bad as on the surface. We're going without masks to save oxygen for the return trip. Jones assures me that there will be a return trip. And the air's only a little sandy, but handkerchiefs over nose and mouth solve this. We look like desperados, what with the rifles and covered faces. I've said as much to Lloyd, and he told me to shut up. Moss all over the cliff walls. Swell luck for Kroger. We've found Kroger and Pat, with the help of the aliens. Or maybe I should call them the Martians. Either way, it's better than what Jones calls them. They took away our rifles and brought us right to Kroger and Pat, without our even asking. Jones is mad at the way they got the rifles so easily. When we came upon them, a group of maybe ten huddled together behind a boulder in ambush. He fired but the shots either bounced off their scales or stuck in their thick hides. Anyway, they took the rifles away and threw them into the stream and picked us all up and took us into a hole in the cliff wall. The hole went on practically forever, but it didn't get dark. Kroger tells me that there are phosphorescent bacteria living in the mold on the walls. The air has a fresh dug grave smell, but it's richer in oxygen than even at the stream. We're in a small cave that is just off the bigger cave, where lots of tunnels come together. I can't remember which one we came in, though, and neither can anyone else. Jones asked me what the hell I keep writing in the diary for. Did I want to make it a gift to Martian archaeologists? But I said, where there's life, there's hope. And now he won't talk to me. 
I congratulated Kroger on the lichen I'd seen, but he just said a short and unscientific word and went to sleep. There's a Martian guarding the entrance to our cave. I don't know what they intend to do with us. Feed us, I hope. So far they've just left us here, and we're out of rations. Kroger tried talking to the guard once, but he, or it, made a whistling kind of sound and flashed a mouthful of teeth. Kroger said the teeth are in multiple rows, like a tiger shark's. I'd rather he hadn't told me. June 23, 1961, I think. We're either in a docket or a zoo. I can't tell which. It's a rather square platform surrounded on all four sides by running water, maybe twenty feet across, and we're on it. Martians keep coming to the far edge of the water and looking at us and whistling at each other. A little Martian came near the edge of the water, and a large Martian whistled like crazy and dragged it away. Water must be dangerous to them, said Kroger. We should have brought water pistols, Jones muttered. Pat says maybe we could swim to safety. Kroger told Patty was crazy that the little island we're on here underground is bordered by a fast river that goes into the planet. We'd end up drowned in some grotto in the heart of the planet, said Kroger. What the hell, said Pat. It's better than starving. It is not. June 24, 1961, probably. I'm hungry, so is everyone else. Right now I could eat a dinner raw in a centrifuge and keep it down. A Martian threw a stone at Jones today, and Jones threw one back at him and broke off a couple of scales. The Martian whistled furiously and went away. Then the crowd thinned out, same as it did yesterday. Must be some sort of sleeping cycle here. Kroger talked Lloyd into swimming across the river and getting the red scales. Lloyd started at the upstream part of the current and was about a hundred yards below this underground island before he made the far side. Sure is a swift current. But he got the scales, walked very far upstream of us, and swam back with them. The stream sides are steep like a fjord, and we had to lift him out of the swirling cold water with the scales gripped in his fist or what was left of the scales. They had melted down in the water and left his hand all sticky. Kroger took the gummy things, studied them in the uncertain light, then tasted them and grinned. The Martians are made of sugar. Later, same day, Kroger said that the Martian metabolism must be like Terran, Earth-type metabolism, only with no pancreas to make insulin. They store their energy on the outside of their bodies in the form of scales. He's watched them more closely and seen that they have long, rubbery tubes for tongues, and that they now and then suck up water from the stream while they're watching us, being careful not to get their lips, all sugar of course, wet. He guesses that their blood must be almost pure water, and that it washes away, from inside of course, the sugar they need for energy. I asked him where the sugar came from, and he said probably their bodies isolate carbon from something, he thought it might be the moss, and combine it with hydrogen and oxygen in the water. Even I knew the formula for water. To make sugar a common carbohydrate. Like plants on earth, he said, except instead of using special cells on leaves, 
to form carbohydrates with the help of sun power as earth plants do in photosynthesis kroger spelled this word for me they use the shape of the scales like prisms to isolate the spectra another kroger word necessary to form the sugar i don't get it i said politely when he finished his spiel simple he said as though he were addressing me by name they have a two-fold reason to fear water one by complete solvency in that medium they lose all energy and die two even partial sprinkling alters the shape of the scales and they are unable to use sun power to form more sugar and still die if a bit slower oh i said taking it down verbatim so now what do we do we remove our boots said kroger sitting on the ground and doing so and then we cross the stream fill the boots with water and spray our way to freedom which tunnel do we take asked pat his eyes aglow with the thought of escape kroger shrugged we'll have to chance taking any that seem to slope upward in any event we can always follow it back and start again i don't know said jones remember those teeth of theirs they must be for biting something more substantial than moss kroger we'll risk it said pat it's better to go down fighting than to die of starvation the hell it is june 24 1961 for sure the martians have coal mines that's what they use those teeth for we passed through one and surprised a lot of them chewing gritty chunks of anthracite out of the walls they came running at us whistling with those tube-like tongues and drooling dry coal dust but pat swung one of his boots in an arc that splashed all over the ground in front of them and they turned tail literally and clanked off down another tunnel sounding like a locomotive whistle gone berserk we made the surface in another hour back in the canal and were lucky enough to find our own trail to follow toward the place above where the jeep still waited jones got the rifles out of the stream the martians had probably thought they were beyond recovery there and we found the jeep it was nearly buried in the sand but we got it cleaned off and running and got back to the ship quickly first thing we did on arriving was to break out the stores and have a celebration feast just outside the door of the ship it was pork again i got sick june twenty fifth nineteen sixty one we're going back pat says a week is all we were allowed to stay and that it's urgent to return and tell what we've learned about mars we know there are martians and they're made of sugar why i said can't we just tell them on the radio because said pat if we tell them now by the time we get back we'll be yesterday's news this way we may be lucky and get a parade maybe even money said kroger whose mind wasn't always on science but they'll ask why we didn't radio the info sir said jones uneasily the radio said pat nodding to lloyd was unfortunately broken shortly after landing lloyd blinked then nodded back and walked around the rocket i heard a crunching sound and the shattering of glass not unlike the noise made when one drives a rifle butt through a radio well it's time to take off this time it wasn't so bad i thought i was getting my space legs but pat says there's less gravity on mars so escape velocity 
didn't have to be so fast, hence a smoother, relatively, trip on our shock-absorbing bunks. Lloyd wants to play chess again. I'll be careful not to win this time. However, if I don't win, maybe this time I'll be the one to quit. Kroger is busy in his cramped lab space trying to classify the little moths he was able to gather, and Jones and Pat are up front watching the white specks revolve on the black velvet again. I guess I'll take a nap. June 26, 1961 Hell's Bells Kroger says there are two baby Martians loose on board ship. Pat told him he was nuts, but there are certain signs he's right like the missing charcoal in the air filtration and reclaiming AFAR system. And the water gauges are going down. But the clincher is those two sugar crystals Lloyd had grabbed up when we were in that zoo. They're gone. Pat has declared a state of emergency. Quick thinking, that's Pat. Lloyd, before he remembered and turned scarlet, suggested we radio Earth for instructions. We can't. Here we are, somewhere in a void, headed for Earth, with enough air and water left for maybe three days, if the Martians don't take any more. Kroger is thrilled that he has learned something, maybe, about Martian reproductive processes. When he told Pat, Pat put it to a vote whether or not to jettison Kroger through the airlock. However, it was decided that responsibility was pretty well divided. Lloyd had gotten the crystals, Kroger had only studied them, and Jones had brought them aboard. So Kroger stays, but meanwhile the air is getting worse. Pat suggested Kroger put us all into a state of suspended animation until landing time, eight months away. Kroger said, How? June 27, 1961 The air is foul, and I'm very thirsty. Kroger says that at least, when the Martians get bigger, they'll have to show themselves. Pat says, what do we do then? We can't afford the water we need to melt them down. Besides, the melted crystals might all turn into little Martians. Jones says he'll go down spitting. Pat says, why not dismantle interior of the rocket to find out where they are holed up? Fine idea. How do you dismantle riveted metal plates? June 28, 1961 The Afar system is no more and the water gauges are still dropping. Kroger suggests baking bread, then slicing it, then toasting it till it turns to carbon, and we could use the carbon in the Afar system. We'll have to try it, I guess. The Martians ate the bread. Jones came forward to tell us the loaves were cooling, and when he got back, they were gone. However, he did find a few of the red crystals on the galley deck floor. They're good-sized crystals, too, which means so are the Martians. Kroger says the Martians must be intelligent. Otherwise, they couldn't have guessed at the carbohydrates present in the bread after a lifelong diet of anthracite. Pat says let's jettison Kroger. This time the vote went against Kroger, but he got a last-minute reprieve by suggesting the crystals be pulverized and mixed with sulfuric acid. He says this'll produce carbon. I certainly hope so. So does Kroger. Brief reprieve for us. The acid-sugar combination not only produced carbon, but water vapor. And the gauge has gone up a notch. That means we have a quart of water in the tanks for drinking. However, the air's a bit better, 
and we voted to let Kroger stay inside the rocket. Meantime, we have to catch those Martians. Worse and worse, Lloyd caught one of the Martians in the firing chamber. We had to flood the chamber with acid to subdue the creature, which carbonized nicely. So now we have plenty of air and water again, but besides having another Martian still on the loose, we now don't have enough acid left in the fuel tanks to make a landing. Pat says at least our vector will carry us to Earth, where we can die on our home planet, which is better than perishing in space. The hell it is! March 3, 1962. Earth in sight. The other Martian is still with us. He's where we can't get at him without blowtorches. But he can't get at the carbon in the Yafar system either, which is a help. However, his tail is prehensile, and now and then it snakes out through the air duct and yanks food right off the table from under our noses. Kroger says, watch out. We are made of carbohydrates too. I'd rather not have known. March 4, 1962. Earth fills the screen in the control room. Pat says if we're lucky, he might be able to use the bit of fuel we have left to set us in a descending spiral into one of the oceans. The rocket is tighter than a submarine, he insists, and it will float till we're rescued if the plates don't crack under the impact. We all agree to try it. Not that we thought it had a good chance of working, but none of us had a better idea. I guess you know the rest of the story, about how the destroyer spotted us and got us and my diary aboard, and towed the rocket to San Francisco. News of the captured Martian leaked out, and we all became nine-day wonders until the dismantling of the rocket. Kroger says he must have dissolved in the water, and wonders what that would do. There are about a thousand of those crystal scales on a Martian. So last week we found out, when those red-scaled things begin clamoring out of the ocean on every coastal region on Earth. Kroger tried to explain to me about salinity osmosis and hydrostatic pressure and crystalline life, but in no time at all he lost me. The point is, bullets don't stop these things, and whenever a crystal falls, a new Martian springs up in a few weeks. It looks like the five of us have abetted an invasion from Mars. Needless to say, we're no longer heroes. I haven't heard from Pat or Lloyd in a week. Jones was picked up attacking a candy factory yesterday, and Kroger and I were allowed to sign on for a flight to Venus, scheduled within a few days, because of our experience. Kroger says there's only enough fuel for a one-way trip. I don't care. I've always wanted to travel with the President. The End of The Dope on Mars by Jack Sharkey